Welcome back, warriors. Kwe Nindeluizi Pam Palmiter, and I'm the host of this podcast, The Warrior Life. We cover everything from native sovereignty, treaties, and land back to decolonization, reconciliation, and how to support the struggle. So if you're interested in hearing from Native peoples from sovereign nations all over Turtle Island talk about their experiences in Indigenous resistance, resurgence, and revitalization, then this is the podcast for you. And there are many free ways to support this podcast. You can like it, give it five stars on your podcast app, or share it on your social media. Today's podcast is a special one. There have been so many questions and so much confusion about the Assembly of First Nations and Canada's Settlement Agreement on First Nations Child Welfare and how it relates to the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal's orders on compensation. We decided to answer all of your questions, so you don't want to miss this episode... Welcome back to a new season of the Warrior Life podcast. This week, the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal released its decision in relation to the AFN and Canada's request to modify the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal's decision ordering compensation for First Nations children and families that were harmed by the foster care system. They wanted the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal order to be modified so as to accept the agreement that the AFN in Canada negotiated with the intention of resolving both the class actions and the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal case, both of which are separate. Dr. Cindy Blackstock, head of the First Nations Child and Family Caring Society and the Canadian Human Rights Commission, both opposed this application by AFN in Canada because they said it would take away the compensation already ordered to thousands of children. As soon as the decision was released, there was misinformation everywhere, from media headlines to press conferences and Facebook posts. It was clear that few people took the time to actually read the AFN Canada agreement and what it really means. Knowing that this decision would be released soon, Dr. Cindy Blackstock joined me for a live YouTube question and answer session to answer all of your questions about the original Canadian Human Rights Tribunal compensation order. She also helped explain the separate AFN Canada settlement agreement on First Nations child welfare. We asked for your questions ahead of time and wow, did you have a ton of questions. So our 45-minute live Q&A session turned into 90 minutes so that Cindy could answer not just the questions you sent in, but the questions that were being sent from the people who were there at the live session. Today's podcast is the first hour of that session. To hear the extended version, just head to my YouTube channel and check it out. I'll post the link below. But remember, all of my content is always accessible on my website www.pampalmeter.com. Good evening, everybody. Quainine Deluisi Pam Palmeter, and I am a Mi'kmaq lawyer, professor, and content creator. I'm also a member of Eel River Bar First Nation, which is part of the larger Mi'kmaq Nation, an unceded and sovereign Mi'kmaqi, and I work in the area of Indigenous issues, 
focusing on First Nations and also things like human rights. But tonight I'm coming to you from the sovereign Mississaugas of Scugog territory. And joining me tonight is one of my favorite people. <laughs> it's Dr. Cindy Blackstock. And she's from the Gixan First Nation that's in BC. And for those of you who don't know her, and I think most people know her by now, she's the head of the First Nation Child and Family Caring Society. And she's also a professor in the School of Social Work at McGill University. Most of you know her as the uh, and her team at the First Nation Child and Family Caring Society and all of the amazing lawyers and spirit bears and a random assortment of other bears. And I think there's even a dino that Cindy has. Yeah, the dino. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This whole team and volunteers and kids and allies have all worked really hard to help fight for justice for First Nation kids in care and their families. And by now, you would know that they won their Canadian Human Rights Tribunal case some time ago. The interesting thing is that Cindy used Canada's own internal documents to prove that Canada was racially discriminating against First Nations kids in foster care and their families. In other words, Canada knew that by treating First Nations kids unfairly, that many First Nation kids would be unfairly put into foster care. So without further ado, thank you so much for joining me tonight, Cindy. There are so many questions, but first of all, where are you? I'm really honored to join you from unceded and unsurrendered Algonquin territory today, but I actually just had the great honor of visiting with First Nations folks up in, in Whitehorse and in Winnipeg, so I'm just feeling really... <laughs> Just really energized by all the wonderful conversations and ideas that people have shared with me. I know. And like how everyone just loves kids, right? Yeah. We think about so small, they're so vulnerable in certain circumstances. They need to be surrounded by love and care and protection and comfort. And it's just so great to see so many people come out, whether you're having a fundraising or a gala or a speech or a gathering, because they're all doing it for kids. And that's just really special. And it's one of the reasons why I wanted to have this live session tonight, because you would not believe how many questions I have been getting about the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal compensation order, but also this settlement between the Assembly of First Nations, AFN, and Canada, and what it means. Is it a done deal? How does it relate to the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal? And so I thought the better, the best person to get here to answer those questions would be you. And I don't know if you can answer all of these questions because I've been gathering them up all day. And if you can't, that's cool. But for whichever ones you can, I think the people who are watching would really appreciate clearing up some of the confusion or misinformation or sometimes even rumors go around about what's happening. Mm -hmm. It's important to clarify. But before we get started, it's important that I have to do the disclaimer that neither Cindy and I are providing financial advice, legal advice, medical advice, or even personal advice. We're just doing our best to read everything that we can, to do all the research and provide our interpretation of what's happening. And it's because we have concerns about some of these things. So for those of you who have not heard about the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal case, we're not going to be going over that in detail today. Cindy and I have done a multitude of podcasts on that. So if you want the details, I'll put links in the description box below and you can go and listen to all of the details. I think the focus of tonight is really what's going on with this settlement? 
What does it mean for the Human Rights Tribunal Compensation Order? And clearing up some of the confusion. Cindy, because we're not going into the details, can you just give a quick snapshot about the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal Order and the compensation? Sure. So as everyone knows, the federal government funds public services on reserve. And ever since, way even before Confederation, they always shortchange First Nations folks. We're always getting less and more trauma than everybody else and expected to cope with it. So this was really piling up on the hopes and dreams of kids. And we actually worked with, for 10 years with the federal government to point out these inequalities and show how they were hurting families and, her, and resulting in the removal of kids in care, but also the denial of services through Jordan's principle. But basic things like feeding tubes for kids or help for with children with autism or medical transportation, all these things that kids need. Nations kids were being told no or you get less. And so we actually filed the case with the Assembly of First Nations back in 2007. And we said, this is racial discrimination. And the federal government fought it tooth and nail, Pam. Like, holy smokes. I didn't even know there was that many levels of court, but we went through them and the kids won every time. <laughs> yes, for the kids. Yeah. And in 2016, they were ordered, a legal order to stop discriminating. But they didn't do it. And so we've now had 22 non-compliance and procedure orders against the federal government. And uh, so that's a lot of... That's a lot. Yeah. Think about this. If you were breached probation 22 times, you wouldn't be yeah. in good shape. But they did say that they wanted to negotiate a settlement on both the compensation, which is meant to try and give some measure of justice and recognition to all the children and families who are hurt. And... To, to stop the discrimination from happening, because it's still going on as far as I'm concerned, and mm -hmm. to make sure that they don't do this to another generation of kids. So that's the work that we have underway. Wow. Sounds so simple. But when you just say it's been over a decade, yeah. there are 22, I think you said, non-compliance orders. You would just think that at, a, at the very least, they would comply with what the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal would say. How does this differ? From the settlement agreement right now, I understand there's some class act, one or two class actions, and this settlement agreement is supposed to like wrap everything up together. And there's a lot of questions about that. In fact, asked, what is this settlement agreement about? And does it cancel out the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal compensation? And he says it's very confusing. And I agree. I think so, too. Like, I'm learning, too. So let me tell you what I know here is that under the Canadian Human Rights Act, which is the same law that we filed the human rights case, they can award up to $40,000 for victims. And they did that uh, back in 2019. They said, this is a worst case scenario. Canada knew what it was doing and it still didn't fix the problem. So it ordered $40,000. Now, under the Canadian Human Rights Act, you can only go back a year before you filed the complaint. So from 2006 forward. That's where the date 2006 comes in. Yeah. So Canada was ordered to pay the money by the tribunal and Canada said, no, we're not paying any money. And they appealed it to the federal court. And then they lost there. And meanwhile, Canada started saying, we want to, we actually don't want to pay the human rights tribunal money. We actually want to give these people more money. And we're going to do that by having a class action, and then we'll just absorb the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal orders and then build more on top of that. The folks that are in the class action are what we call the Mushroom Group, which is a group of lawyers primarily out of Quebec and Toronto, and then the Assembly of First Nations. 
So they signed an agreement in principle last December, and it basically said, we're going to settle on $20 billion, right? And we're going to compensate all these people. Now, that's a lot of money. Do you know, Pam, there's lots of people out there that was hurt by Canada. And their class action goes back to 1991. The question was, is that enough money to give the people that mm -hmm. already are entitled to 40, their 40? And when we looked at the final settlement agreement, it turned out that some people will get more, and that's a good thing. But sadly, some kids who are already entitled to 40 would get nothing. The estates of parents that are already entitled to 40 would get nothing. And also the entitlements for all the families and children under Jordan's principle, they're still working out the criteria. So it's really unclear what they're going to get under that. And that caused us some concern because yeah. the job of the Caring Society is to stand up for the people who are left behind. I don't want to take anything away from people who are getting more under the mm -hmm. final settlement agreement. That's a good thing. But we certainly don't want to see people, especially children, have something taken away from them. And that's what we're worried is happening here under this final settlement agreement. That's a valid concern because effectively they've already won their case. Yeah. It's been upheld to do otherwise would just be taking money out of the pockets of kids. And that doesn't seem very fair. And what we're trying to do is make sure that kids are treated fairly by all of us. And I'm also glad that you cleared up the 2006 date because yeah. a lot of people were asking questions about that. Why mm -hmm. did you only pick 2006? But it wasn't that you picked 2006. It's that yeah, you were no. trying to work with Canada in good faith for a decade. And then the legal rule is that you can't go back more than a year. So you really right. had no control over that. No. And so good. I'm glad we answered that question. And, and I guess you've already answered Tanya's question because she wanted to know if Canada has complied with the order to compensate because she was saying, I haven't seen any payment for my kids. And so obviously the answer is no. The answer is no. They haven't paid a penny in compensation. And one of the things that's in that final settlement agreement is it said the tribunal has to agree with this final settlement agreement, basically replace its orders with whatever's in this final settlement agreement in order for Canada to start paying the money. And so that that's crazy because really Canada yeah. should be paying the money now. They're under legal order to pay the money. It just feels like they're trying to delay yeah. and get out of pain. These people have suffered enough. They should just be cutting these checks and they're not doing it yet. Exactly. And it just, it literally makes no sense to me because when you have to think about Every time Canada delays or litigates, is it ever for a good purpose? Yeah. At the end of the day, it's generally not a good purpose. And certainly there's people out there waiting who could benefit from the compensation. In fact, they shouldn't even have to argue about it because they've already won. Yeah. They've already got this compensation. That's right. Well, and half of the people entitled to compensation, Pam, and this one, and this is important for all your listeners to know, are actually still children. Like we think about the Indian residential schools or the day schools or the 60s scoop, and those people were hurt as children, but they received their compensation as adults. In this case, over half of them are still children. And so their monies will go into trust. But it just, it really brings into stark relief what we're talking about here, Right. Like these, mm -hmm. this was a government that hurt little kids who are still little kids. And that's why it's really important to me that we get this right. 
that we don't leave little kids behind, that we make sure that we really are honoring them and that we're providing all the victims with all the support that they need. I think that's a really important point because oftentimes people think, oh, foster care was in the past yeah. because 60 scoop was in the past or yeah. residential schools are in the past. Then that, that really forgets two things. One about the intergenerational impacts and two yeah. that the foster care crisis is literally ongoing. The discrimination is ongoing. The harm is ongoing. And correct me if I'm wrong, but some of the people who would get compensation, they're actually very little kids. Like, yeah, there could really? be infants who would get compensation because the end date for the compensation for kids coming into care was April of this year. So you could really have an infant that will do doing it. And this is important for communities to think about too, right? Because you want to make sure that everyone, when they do turn 18, that they have the supports there. So that money doesn't go to a vulnerable young person, maybe who's really traumatized and into addictions and it can create damage for that person. So how do you prepare supports at a community level for children in your community? Every year, you're going to be supporting people through that process. And that's why also we really have to be very supportive and very clear about what is going to happen when the money comes out. I think that's important. And I don't think that when they do get their compensation, they should have to be subsidizing for all of the programs and services that Canada still doesn't fund at a fair level, which, as I understand, that's part of the Spirit Bear plan to really ask Canada to look at all of the social programs and services, not just child and family services, and make sure kids and families and First Nations are treated fairly across the board. Because the last thing you'd want to do is to, for these kids to to get their compensation and then say, oh, now I have to pay for clean drinking water, those kinds of things. So we want to make sure that we protect them too, and that they maybe have some financial supports about what to do with this money, how you can make this money work for you, so that they have that kind of advice and guidance around it. On that one, we've done something. We reached out with First Nations Youth and Care and with the Youth and Care Network of Canada. And we actually created financial literacy videos. And actually, I find them good, fam. I'm not exactly the best mathematician. I keep myself, I make sure my bills are paid. But yeah, yeah. it's always good to have some good financial tips. And so these are really practical things that everyone should know. Like how to open up a bank account. What is, how to avoid predatory loans, like yeah. payday loans and all the rest of that. All that kind of stuff. And so we've done, we've worked with them and did oh, these great awesome. kind of videos. We just released them this year. So those are out there, but that's just a small piece of the supports that people will need. Yeah. And I think about, and I don't know about you, but when I was younger, my family didn't tell me about financial literacy or anything else and they probably didn't know it either you were basically on a piece of paper saying this is how much i get paid and i'm going to pay all these bills but you don't know the impacts of credit cards and their high no. interest or predatory loans or any of the other things that once you get in it's really hard to get out so i think that's really valuable and i can't wait it's available to the public right like i could yeah, go it's it. available to the public and they're already out there and they're like the cool kind of thing those infographic stuff yeah, yeah. you know like me like it really helps and yeah. that's really good so michael wants to know what is the 40 billion about? Because you yeah. hear lots of people talking about the 20 billion. And I think people are confused. Is it 20 billion? Is it 40 billion? What is each aspect of the settlement for? Yeah, excellent question, Michael. So when we think about compensation, that's for the people who are already hurt. Okay. 
So there's $20 billion that Canada's agreed in this class action to pay in compensation. So that's for the folks who sadly already experienced the harm from Canada. Then the goal is we got to fix this. Yeah. We got to make sure there aren't more people hurt and that they don't do it again. So there's $20 billion for that over a period of five years. And we have, are working now with First Nations and First Nations experts to try and figure out how do we really make the most of that money for kids? Then the other thing is, this is only a five-year deal for that $20 billion to fix the problem. What happens in year six and seven? We yeah. have, that is a big question because none of us have done this work to just have non-discrimination for our kids for five years. Like this, this last week, I was in these beautiful communities and I saw these beautiful babies. And I thought, when you're five or you're six, yeah. you deserve the same kind of help that kids are finally just starting to get in nations right now through Jordan's principle and for family support services. So there, that's what the other $20 billion is for, is to fix the problem and to stop it from happening again. So that's super important. We don't want to just keep settling no. harm because you can't undo the harm to kids. You can't undo the harm to families. And you think about babies like... My son and his fiance are going to have a baby in March and Ooh. I'm going to be a granny. And the thought of even my grandkids being taken away, my own kids being taken away, that harm is irreplaceable to the, not just for the kids, grandkids, but also for the moms and grandmoms and aunties. It's just irreparable damage. And so the compensation even here is small. It's the maximum they could order but it's really small. And I'm also glad you raised the five-year deal because I never thought what does happen in year six, does yeah. everything go back to the way it was? Where's the legal obligation for them to continue? And yeah. then, you know, thinking off the top of my head, and I know you might not know the answer to this, but if that's the case, how does this affect First Nations who drew down jurisdiction under Bill C-92, the First Nation Child Welfare Law, because we know from Indigenous Services Canada, their affidavits, and we in different parliamentary and Senate committees were saying, oh, those, they won't even get the benefit of the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal or Jordan's principle. And that was before this settlement, especially on the long-term reform. So I'm wondering, but this is a lot more complicated and I haven't seen any information sheets that are out there saying, oh, don't worry, C-92 First Nations, you're still going to get the same thing. You're going to get the same as everyone else, because it's certainly not that way, at least according to Indigenous Services Canada. And that really concerns me. I'd like to see some answers to that. Yeah, I think there needs to be a lot of assurances. If you read the C-92 Act itself, it doesn't actually obligate Canada to pay a penny. No. And that is the... that. That's, I think, why they were so excited to do the photo op and say, Woo, because there's no financial obligation on them. They did in the agreement of principle for our long term reform say that they would give them the same level as everyone else okay. as a minimum. But how do you make sure that's actually happening? Yeah. And an agreement in principle, Japan, is really is non-binding. It's like an agenda for something that might be binding. Yeah. Well, I think that there's a lot of work that needs to be done. And folks like Naomi Metallic and Hadley Friedland, these other brilliant women who are out there doing this work, we'll have to have them in for a conversation about C92, talk about that.
I think that's why it's so important that for things like this on such a global national level, on such a critical issue, you really got to be reaching out and talking to a larger portion of people about what should be in this, what shouldn't be in this, what are some of the gaps that we didn't think of, right? Because something I might think of, you, you might not, and vice versa, something you think of, maybe Naomi Metallic or Hadley wouldn't think of. And so I, I really think these things really need to have much larger engagement or at least information. You know what? And we always knew this in our different diverse first nations. The one thing we have in common is we knew it took a community to raise a child. Yeah. And that's what we're doing here. But even though when we're thinking about how do we set families and communities up for success, it's really about how taking care of that, building that community around the child. And that's why it's so important that we all say, look, I got some of the answers. I don't have all of them. And let's not make this an idea competition. Let's actually do the right thing for kids and bring all the best ideas to the kids. It just reminds me of something that you said. It Like, kids know this. Kids know yeah. the basics of fairness. They don't think about politics. They don't think about no. negotiations. It's just like, do we have fairness or not? Yeah. And we're not there yet. But this information will help people understand all of this better. And I have another question. It's from okay. Suzanne. Oh, it's two questions and we may have partially answered it, but she says, didn't Canada say that these children who are compensated with $40,000, didn't Canada say that, don't worry, no one is going to get lower than that. The reason why we want to have a settlement agreement is to make sure that if people suffered greater harms, that they could increase it above 40000 but 40000 would be the absolute minimum. That sounds familiar to me. I'm pretty sure I heard <laughs> federal officials say that. Did you? Yeah, I heard a lot of politicians actually say <laughs> that in the government. And with really what they were saying is, we're going to class action because we want to give people more. And we want to give more people compensation. And uh, that would be a good thing. Yeah. Uh, it's like when you hear something that sounds really good, and then you look at the fine print. And we didn't really see the fine print until that agreement was out. And so what we want to make sure here, like I think about this deal, like I, I don't like to use a Bible reference very often because of all the bad things the Bible did, but I'm thinking of Noah's Ark, Pam. The Noah's Ark story was really good if you were on the Ark, but it was really bad if you were left behind. And that's what I, I think we have to pay attention to is we have to make sure that, and we're talking about children here and mm -hmm. other parents and caregivers. We got to make sure that everybody's on that Ark. Yeah, exactly. Especially when it comes to Canada is in the process of allegedly trying to make reparations for generations of genocide. They're supposed to be in this process of reconciliation and making sure that they don't do any more discrimination. So you would think no one should be left behind. Yeah. But I'm starting to see a lot of cracks and a lot of gaps and potential for that to happen. And I think it's just, I'm so glad that you're out there making arguments at the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal saying, look, don't forget about this. We can't leave these kids out. These are like bare minimum standards. So Barb, I think Barb was from Facebook. I forgot to write down whether they're from Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. There were so many questions. Well, you're amazing at social media. I tried. I was on Facebook for a while. I just couldn't keep up. So now all I do is Twitter. I know I'm missing all the kind of good news that happens on kind of Indigenous Facebook, but 
One day we'll we'll have a bit more time and a bit more savvy on the internet and I'll get back on there. (laughs) No, I think you're doing enough now. But the good thing about all social media is you can find out what people really want to know. And not a single one of them asked anything about politics, about jobs, about none of the kind of other stuff that politicians talk about. They're asking these basic questions, which are the key questions. Oh, yes. Okay. So is this the same Barb? Okay, oh, no. So Barb wants to know if the First Nations Child and Family Services or Child and Family Caring Society is part of this settlement agreement, as in she wants to know specifically, do you guys have to sign off on the settlement? Did you sign off when AFN in Canada did? Yeah, this is a really good question, Barb. And there's another thing to get confusing. At the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal, we're a party, which means we brought the case along with the Assembly of First Nations. So we were there arguing for the compensation. And in fact, the Chiefs in Assembly of all the First Nations passed a resolution directing us all to go for the maximum $40,000. So we did that and we defended that order in federal court. And then we thought, okay, that's done. Then Canada needs to start cutting the checks. Over on the side, Canada signed an agreement with the class action lawyers and with AFN. That agreement is only signed by them. Not you or the Caring Society. Okay. We were actually asked at one point to join a class action. And I said, no. I said, that's not our role. Our role Mm -hmm. is really to start is to try and get justice for these kids to stop Mm -hmm. the discrimination. We... Class actions, there's lots of people out there that can do that. And so that's a totally separate thing. But where they start to combine is because a class action means it's going to change some of the tribunal's orders. They came back over to the tribunal and they said, tribunal, you should accept our final settlement agreement and get rid of your, basically replace your orders with our agreement. And we said, hold on here a minute. There's some good things about this thing. But there's lots of there's some folks being left behind. And we want to just bring your attention, Tribunal, that there's folks being left behind and give the class action folks a chance to fix that. This may seem like a simple question, but can't they do both? Can't they say, hey, as part of this settlement, this all of these people who are awarded their compensation, which we promised would be a bare minimum, couldn't they get that? And still have this settlement agreement to deal with it, like everything else, including long-term reform and other issues, pay them more, like the government said, especially if they had long-term issues. Can't you do both? Yeah, you can. And one of the things why I think Canada is trying to do here is under the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal, when you get Canadian Human Rights Tribunal compensation, you also retain the right as a person who is harmed to go after them for more money in the courts. But under a class action, what they do is they waive that. So I think what Canada is trying to do is say, we don't want, we don't know how many people we actually mm-hmm. hurt. And we don't want all these people coming out of the woodwork. And who knows how much we owe under the King Human Rights Tribunal. So under this, uh, under the class action, they could try and cap that out at a specific amount, that being 20 billion. I think that's what, that's one of the factors that may have gone into their thinking. And Canada and Justice Canada, they're always thinking about how to limit liability. So base, so if this happens the way we're worried it would happen, not only would they be taking that compensation away as a minimum floor that they already wanted, but they could also be taking away their right to go to court later if they want to, if they need to, if the thing suggests. So it's 
it's more things being potentially at risk. Neither one of those things have to happen, right? No. I mean, it's like, and in my view, this is what I've always felt is Canada is a repeat offender. Let's not forget about that, right? Residential schools, and then the survivors told their truth through their tears so their children, grandchildren wouldn't go through it. Canada got up and apologized, it compensated. Then we have the 60s scoop. They do it again, same thing. And now I'm thinking, like, they have not changed their behavior. That's what resulted in the harms to these kids. So they should be paying more. Because that's what's going to take to for them to learn a lesson and not hurt another generation of children. And the and as we we're talking earlier, the harms from generation to generation get harder to deal with for families. I think that needs to be recognized in the compensation amount. Canada's just choosing to say we want to deal with it over here instead of doing the yes and solution, which is I think the human solution, the most kind and loving solution, and the most just. Yes. Solution. Because 40000 is nothing. If you look at, I don't do civil litigation, but I keep uh, up to date on the kinds of compensation that people are awarded. So 40000 is nothing. Canada, like you said, could say, okay, you get your compensation. And if you want to be part of this settlement agreement. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't see what's wrong with that, especially in cases where it even hurts me to say this, but we're not just talking about living children and families. No, we're, not. we're talking about kids who, because of Canada's discrimination, passed away. And that's really serious business. So th- these are the last people we should be taking anything from. Yeah. And you, know, you just look across and you look at some of these other big settlements that Canada has made and they're way north of $40,000. I just think childhood's worth so much more than that. You only get one childhood. And I don't think that Canada, it's not that child's problem that Canada hurts so many people no. and that number gets so big, right? Yeah. It, it's that child's experience needs to be honored with proper compensation for them mm-hmm. and for and also the important part for all these people is they went through this suffering and they want it to stop for the next generation of kids and that's where that long-term reform piece comes into both of those pieces are just so important because if canada just keeps settling it reminds me of Certain organizations, I won't mention them tonight, they get sued by a group of people because they're engaged in harassment or things, discrimination. They settle the claim and then they're sued 10 years later and then 10 years later because the problem never stops. They've never taken steps to do the long-term reform. They're just going to keep paying out compensation. And so you're knowingly hurting people in the future. And that's what we don't want for any of these kids, including the ones that are going to be born in the future. Now, Jen asked, and I think we already answered it, but Jen asked if there's any chance at all that kids and family might not receive their compensation order under the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal if this settlement adopted. For some families, it will. And I also should say, Canada has appealed the tribunal's compensation orders too to the federal court of appeal. So it's got this appeal hanging over, even over that as a place. Canada basically is trying to keep all its eggs in a basket and Mm. and much as possible have control over what it pays or how it pays or if it pays. So nothing is for sure right now on any of those fronts. What we do have under the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal is two legal orders saying that these people are entitled to $40,000. That is for sure. But there are higher levels of court that you know, Pam, your full-time life is in law. 
those higher levels of courts could potentially overturn it. I don't think they would, the whole agreement, but it's a possibility. Let's hope not. Let's hope that the integrity of Canadian Human Rights Tribunal orders are always respected, always implemented, because that's the actual the whole purpose of the Canadian yeah. Human Rights Tribunal. And it doesn't say much for human rights and our commitment to human rights if they're optional. We can or cannot fulfill these compensation orders or we can or cannot change them. And I don't think that's good for the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal, for human rights in general, for First Nations. I don't think it's a really good precedent to set. Yeah, we're worried about that too. And especially because there's other First Nations cases, one on policing, special education. And uh, we don't want to have final orders in the tribunal that Canada is supposed to follow through on. And then all of a sudden, they go back, oh, we want to change it. That's not the way the system is supposed to work. And I just, I just want to say thank you to the tribunal and all, because I think that process has really led to life-changing results for a lot of kids and families through Jordan's principle and through the family prevention services you're finally rolling out there. But we don't want to create loopholes, more loopholes yeah. for the, to get under, undermine those orders and undermine the services and help families are getting. Basically, we shouldn't allow human rights to be optional. No, you know, if it's convenient or not. And I had an interesting and I think we just answered this question, but there was a lawyer who didn't want to be named, not even his first name. But he wanted to know if his reading of all of because on your website, you post all of the documents that go to court. So your submissions, Human Rights Tribunal, AFN, everybody. So this lawyer is saying he wants to know if his reading of the settlement agreement is correct. He thinks, and we just talked about this, that there could be actually a large number of First Nations children who are already awarded compensation who will be excluded, like not get any compensation if approved. Not just that they'll get stuff under the settlement agreement, but some that might not get anything. It's, and he just wants to know, am I reading that right? And he said, if I'm reading this right, wouldn't that be literally like stealing money out of the pockets of the most vulnerable children in this country? Yeah, we read it very similarly. There are a group of children in care who are excluded from that final settlement agreement. And those are kids who had to be moved from their families during a child welfare investigation. But maybe they stated that the, they have a friend and their mom agreed to take him in, that kind of stuff. Yeah. That's actually the most frequent type of a placement that happens in child welfare. And that's what we want to encourage is mm-hmm. like these more kind of informal arrangements. That's what we traditionally had. Yeah. It's those kids who are not in federally funded placements, but they were removed from their families because their families didn't get the help that they should have yeah. gotten from the federal government. That's a group that if, if this class action get changed, that group will not be included. And they're also, the, as I said, the estates of parents who died. Those Right now, both those groups, in our view, are entitled to $40,000 under the King Human Rights Tribunal's orders. And that's why we're standing up for that at the King Human Rights Tribunal. And the tribunal's got to make a difficult choice right now. And you can imagine what position they're in. I really want to honor the fact that there's more people in here, more than yeah. what they could give. Some people will get more, but on the other side, there are these kids who'll get nothing and other the estates of parents. And one of the things we fought for states for is Pam, like one of the biggest injustices out there still is those children in Anmar Grays 
When the residential school settlement happened, they got nothing. Like their states yeah. got no recognition. They had the worst case scenario and nothing, no compensation for those kids. And we wanted these parents' estates to be compensated because we knew the money would go to the kids. It's like that's the way it works. And so we wanted it was another level of support from a family member, from a parent who wasn't able to give, be with their child as long as they'd like to. It would be a small gift from them. And that's what we fought for. it, And that's why we're standing up for it still. Well, it just, again, it just seems like a matter of fairness and empathy and compassion for people who, because of the discrimination, didn't even survive the discrimination. And you know what? I'm going to skip ahead to Angel's question because she's asking this. She says, what happens to the children or parents who died before the compensation order is actually paid out, if it's paid out? She said, will the compensation be paired to their, paid to their estates, just like compensation for Native veterans who were so terribly treated were paid to their estate? So under the Gay Human Rights Tribunal orders, the estates of all of the parents, eligible parents and eligible children are all paid out as long as you're within the time frames the, of the discrimination at 2006 to roughly yeah, 2020. Yeah, yeah. Under the class action, it's different. It's after the courts agree with this thing, then the clock starts ticking. And so if you die after that and before the payments are actually made, then yes, your estate will be compensated. But my understanding of it, and I'm not a, Class action lawyers have double checked this, but my understanding of it is nobody before that would get it. Oh, Under okay. the parents, the children will, but not the parents. Okay. Now here's one, and it could be just, you know, rumors start based on misinformation yeah. or not under, or most of the time, not enough information. Like how many of us have enough information to understand what's going on, what the implications are, who's in, who's out. That's why we're having this session. Yeah. There's a lady named Stephanie and she was told by one of her band counselors that the AFN is making arguments before the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal that, and she said FPIC, but FPIC means free prior and informed consent, should not apply in a settlement context. And she says, that's not true, isn't it? Doesn't UNDRIP, the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, which has the FPIC standard, doesn't that have to be enforced? She wants to know what's happening before she agrees to anything. And so is that addressed in there at all? Because when I was reading the submissions, and not everybody has, but it looks like AFN's arguing that FPIC or free prior and informed consent does not apply in this context. It doesn't apply to settlements. And they don't feel any obligation to have to consult with First Nations. And I'm thinking... That doesn't sound right to me. Yeah, this is, I'm not an expert in this area. I will tell you, if there's one area where I think Indigenous people should have consent, it's over their own kids. Yeah. Um, yeah. If we would have had consent over our own kids, they wouldn't have gone to residential schools. They would, like, yeah. this is, to me, the one of the key areas. And it's recognized in laws, right? Like, even in the Western laws, right? about yeah. uh, uh, the role of parents like you get to sign off on your kid going to the field trip for a reason yeah. right that's that informed consent and so we need to make sure that that is honored for first nations metis and inuit children i have never read pre prior and informed consent narrowly to apply to lands and resources no that's not my the way that i've interpreted it has been not the way that i've tried to uphold the obligations as i feel them it's always been like, especially with children, the children are the most sacred 
of everything. I don't mean to be brash here, but without the children, the land doesn't really matter. They're the ones that are going to continue all of the teachings and all of the customs and all those traditions and all the languages. So for me, free prior informed consent applies especially to children. And that's the type of thing we've been trying to say to the tribunal. Yeah. I think what we are seeing on the other side is we struck agreement with Canada and that's not subject to free prior informed consent is the way I read their submissions. But you can go read them too on fnwitness.com yeah. on that yeah. one. and then take them to the legal people and the leadership in your, your community and uh, see what you think. Exactly. And I know from my perspective, if you look at all the court cases that talk about how First Nations chiefs and counselors, because they're in a position of power and decision making, and they make decisions that could impact their band membership, they not only act in a fiduciary, so they have to act in their best interests, but they also have to consent or consult with them and get their consent on a large number of issues. It could be lands, it could be treaties. So if you apply that to the AFN, AFN is not a rights holder. They're not a government, but they seem to be empowered to be making decisions around a nationwide settlement. And so if that's the case, I personally would think they're acting in a fiduciary obligation and they're making decisions that could impact the lives of so many people. I would think that at a bare minimum, there should be free prior and informed consent. I don't know if you have actually seen these resolutions, but the other thing that you know I've given a lot of thought to is because the AFN is not a government, they're not mandated to make decisions on treaties or lands or anything else, and they shouldn't uh, on children. I noticed in their submissions, they're saying they have the support of a number of First Nation regions, but not all of them. So that would suggest to me that you need to go back to the table, inform these First Nations and give them the information they need and see if they're gonna to consent to this. Because I have a resolution here from the U Union of BC Indian Chiefs, and it's directly about this Canadian Human Rights Tribunal case and the $40,000 compensation. And so they passed this at one of their meetings. It's resolution number 67 from 2022. And what they're saying is that, be it resolved, final agreement, this final agreement we've been talking about, this settlement agreement, must protect the benefits for children, youth, and families as well as First Nations and First Nation agency service providers arising from that Canadian Human Rights Tribunal decision. And any of those orders, like the compensation, has to be a minimum standard. So if there's any chance at all that a First Nation child or family would not get the minimum standard in the settlement agreement, that would seem to me that they would have to change that to respect this resolution. And it's not just the Union of BC Indians. I also see from BC AFN, so BC Assembly of First Nations, saying the exact same thing, that they need to be consulted because they haven't been consulted, they haven't given their free prior and informed consent, and they're also saying that the AFN and Canada is not authorized to modify the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal compensation order without the free prior and informed consent of all the First Nations in British Columbia and that the order will be a minimum standard. You've got the First Nations Summit in BC basically mm -hmm. making the same kind of resolution. And we don't see, like when the AFN mentioned in their submissions that they have the support of 
Chiefs of Ontario, Anishinaabeaski Nation. They don't say, we have the support and resolutions from the Atlantic region or from the Alberta region or from like any of these other regions they haven't spoken to. And there was a person in here, I'm pretty sure there was someone who asked about, oh yes, so there was someone who asked about what about all the First Nations that are not a part of the Assembly of First Nations? Because over the last 10 years, the number have withdrawn for lots of different political reasons. How are we go? What is the standard that we're going to use to make sure that all First Nations have free, prior, and informed consent on something so massive? And what about those that say we don't agree with your settlement agreement? So that's not a question for you or I to answer because we're not at the AFN, but it definitely raises questions about the standard we're going to enact amongst ourselves. We say Canada and the provinces or any other institution has to at least respect free, prior, and informed consent. And you would think that as amongst us as First Nations, we would do the same thing on something so massive and so critical. Yeah, and the way I look at it is, it's one thing if we're giving people something, mm-hmm. but it's quite enough. There's a real, the obligation becomes much more more serious and important when you're taking things away. Yeah. And the Chiefs and Assembly back in, I think, 2017, 2018, they actually passed a resolution saying go for the 40. So it's already there. And there's never been a resolution passed that, you know, okay, you can go for less. So that was the standard that we kind of base this whole thing on. And then, yeah, more recently, people have been coming forward and saying, hey, like, we have some concerns here. Like we've got children and families and we want to make sure this is a minimum standard. And that's really what these orders should be. They should be the floor. They shouldn't be feeling for any of this stuff. And it's so small. All of this seems very basic. It's such a a minute award compared to other settlements. It's the right thing to do. It's ordered. You're supposed to do it. It's been upheld at the federal court. Just pay it out and continue on with your settlement. And these can join or not. It's like both, not or. Yeah. Now there's obviously on Facebook, there's always rumors going around. And I think it's Rob says he wanted to clarify some of the rumors going around that you personally, Cindy, are going to get millions of dollars from both the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal and this settlement agreement. That cannot be the case. I am getting zero. And okay. let me tell you why. Like, this is a legitimate question. I really thank him for bringing this forward. Like, you, people should be asking these questions, right? Yeah. So under the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal, actually no one other than the victims gets money. And so, you know, that's the way it should be. Like everybody hears about the legal fees and lawyers getting a lot of money. Under the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal, there's nothing, no legal fees or anything else like this. You just write to the victim. But when you get into a class action, which is what we're not a part of it. I haven't signed it. We're not going to sign it. (laughs) Those lawyers will get compensated for their legal fees. And in similar types of sizes of class action, that it's likely going to be in the neighborhood of $50 million. That will be approved by the federal court and that would be paid to the lawyers as part of the class action stuff. We don't know for sure what that amount is, but similar class actions, that's the size of it. Yeah. So, you know, the question of who gets money for trying to stand up for kids rights and I'll say it I think if you do some of the work you probably should get compensated as a lawyer but I didn't want any part of that and I really feel like the caring society a lot of people don't know we don't have any ongoing funding agreements with Canada the only money we get from Canada is when they're court ordered to do stuff for us and this compensation stuff we're doing is actually costing us money 
because we're arguing against Canada. So we're using our own money from my keynotes and everything else like this to pay for this litigation and stand up for these kids left behind. But I really want to thank this person for asking that question. Yeah. I know you feel awkward. This is a really important question to ask because what we want is we want adults to be acting in the best interest of kids. Yeah. And let's face it, sometimes there's other interests on the table and those are important questions to ask. And I'm glad that you did. And me too. And I'm with you. We're hesitant to ask those questions. But I think that if we were all accountable, we would know all of these things. Yeah. There would be summary sheets saying, this is person getting this, yeah. and this is getting this, and this is getting this. And who knows? It's because of the lack of information. We don't know. Yeah. But I always knew that you didn't get any compensation and your lawyers don't get any compensations out of that either. So you have a phenomenal team who have been working on this forever. Thank you to them for doing yeah. amazing work and knowing that they're not going to get money out of the Canadian Rights Tribunal. It goes all to the kids and yeah. families. And I think, I think that we really re need to think rethink settlements and the amount of money that goes to lawyers because yeah. there's a difference between your hourly fee yeah, and, and that the contingency fee where you just get these exorbitant amounts. And we know the problems that happened with the past Indian residential school settlement and those kinds of things. And we don't want that here. No. And I think that there needs to be like just this is a side topic, but I think yeah. whenever you've got skin in a game as mm -hmm. an adult, in somebody else's thing, I think that has to be really clearly declared. So if I was going out there, if you have some a lawyer who's actually going to financially benefit by that agreement being signed off, yeah. approved by the courts, when they're out there talking to people, they should say, hey, just FYI, yeah. I, this is part of my disclosure to you. I want to be honest about that. It just brings all kinds of integrity to the process. But yeah. if all this stuff is happening behind the scenes, that, that really gets in the way. And I think that I think it's really important that all of us be accountable because yeah. this really is about honoring the victims and honoring their families. And so especially in things like this. Like yeah. I think of all of the, there were some cases where lawyers were charging residential school survivors exorbitant fees oh, yeah. just to apply for their own award. And I'm thinking, gosh, I hope that would not happen in this case. Anyway, I'm glad that he raised it. Me too. Because it is about accountability and honesty. Yeah. And you literally post everything on your website. Yeah. So I think that's also helpful. Yeah, I really want everyone to go and read the documents. So you would, you'll be able to see everything. Yeah, and there was another question from Ryan, who's basically asking the same thing. Yeah. Who besides the children and families get the money from the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal? And then he said, who from, aside from the children and families, get money from the, the AFN Canada agreement? So you've just clarified, no one but the kids and families get it from the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal. but lawyers and i don't know if they've hired experts or whatever else so we don't know because we just don't have that information yet truly answer that in total ryan but hopefully that information will be there soon and my um, understanding pam is that when the class actions go ahead and they actually have to then the lawyers file something with the federal court saying we want to be paid this amount I think that's the way it works. So I, one of the things that you can do is so, uh, and uh, when this thing goes to federal court is actually look at how much they're asking for, because it has oh. to be approved by the federal court. 
That's my understanding of it. Yeah, I'm learning as I'm going along, but we'll all be able to see what it looks like when that happens. It's funny because I'm a lawyer, but lawyers practice in such specific yeah. areas, civil litigation or tax court or whatever. And it's, so I don't know these policies and procedures of civil litigation, not to that extent. So I'll be looking for that for sure. Now, Ben has a bunch of questions and I think we already answered them, but he, and if we can't answer some of them, that's okay. So he wanted to know, does AFN have authority from the chiefs in assembly to, to sign on to this settlement agreement and not have the Canadian human rights tribunal order? And I think you already said that the AFN has a resolution to not go below the 40 or something. It has, it was actually a resolution to go for the 40. Oh, so going for the 40. Okay. So that's really the only resolution they have on it, right? That's my understanding. I don't okay. know of a resolution giving authority to file the class action or to sign yeah. a final settlement agreement. Okay. And his other question was, what does the BCAFN, because he's from BC, have to say about this, but I've already read out the resolutions. And what I can do also is post links to these resolutions below. And if you just go to the First Nation Caring website, you'll be able to see all this. Have the First Nations Chiefs and Assembly, like at the AFN, had a chance to review this settlement agreement in Assembly have their questions answered and passed a resolution saying we support this settlement agreement before it was signed? Okay. The answer to that is not before it was signed. So it was signed as best as I can remember on June 30th of this year. And the Chiefs Assembly met, I think, July 4th to 6th. Did I got that right? I think so. Uh, somewhere like about a week later, but the agreement had already been signed. So there were information sessions, but there was no resolution from the chiefs. And even if a resolution had been asked for, it had already been signed. So that's my understanding of what happened there. Okay. So that really goes back to these other resolutions saying you didn't get our consent from the different BC First Nations. Okay. So that's something that AFN and these First Nations are going to have to yeah. deal with. Yeah, there was, however, a, and we saw this in the filings at the tribunal, and I just want to be totally fair. So there was a resolution passed by the regional chiefs in favor of filing the class action, but not by the chiefs in the assembly. So the regional chiefs, as you have every region, they, oh, yeah. the chiefs have a regional chief for AFN, they go to yeah. executive. So that's, there is that. And so for anyone who doesn't know, the regional chiefs, are the executive of the AFN. Yeah. So it's still the AFN. That's yeah. the decision-making body. So the AFN approved the settlement for AFN as opposed to a First Nation Summit or BCAFN yeah. or some of these other ones. But I understand they do have the specific resolutions and support from the Chiefs of Ontario and Nishnabi Aski Nation for sure. Because I, mm -hmm. I, I saw that in the submissions. And then the question is asked, what about... That his last one is, what about First Nations who have withdrawn from the AFN over the years? Are they consulted with separately or do they have to approve separately? I don't know what AFN is going to do or has done about that. I'm not sure if you do. No, we actually asked this question as part of the cross-examination. So if you go on to the our cross-examination of AFN's affiant, Janice, let's see if I'm really, I really yeah, apologize. Yeah. I can't pronounce her name properly. She's the CEO of AFN. She swore an affidavit. And we asked, we asked about what about those First Nations that may not be members of the Assembly of First Nations? And there was, I think, a response back that it was just a handful of them. 
And I'm not sure what the process is around these types of national issues that could affect those yeah. nations who have chosen to withdraw. So that's above my pay grade and above my yeah. expertise. So <laughs> I don't know either, like but it's definitely a good question. Yeah, it's an excellent Okay, so let's see what else. Don had several questions. Wait, I think it's just a couple. Yeah. Will the oral First Nations women and mothers be given time to review the agreement separately in order to consent or not? I don't know. I haven't seen that there's a in, Indigenous or First Nation women specific process. And because she's saying that the AFN has no governing power to make decisions over our children. And the National Inquiry into Murder to Mish Thing said from this point forward, Native women have to be considered specially and only mm. they can make decisions on their behalf. So I think she's raising a good point. But yeah. again, I don't know if they're going to negotiate with First Nation women separately or mothers who have been impacted separately. I think it's a good idea. But I don't know. Yeah, and I don't know that either. And but there is a the AFN does have a website about the class action, and you can call them up and ask them these good questions too. And I really recommend that people do and share ideas about how to do this. Because I, again, we come back to the thing about it takes a community to help children and raise a child. That's why good ideas like that can come forward. Oh my gosh, yes. And I think our last question here that I got from all of the social media today, and then I'll look at some of the comments. Yeah. And this is from Kim. And Kim is asking, what about all of the First Nations women and men who are in federal and provincial prisons yeah. who have been impacted by the um, child welfare system themselves or their kids have because of the over-incarceration of themselves in prison and then they have their kids taken away. Is there a special process to engage with them? And she says as part B, what about the homeless? What about those living in shelters? What about the most vulnerable of First Nations? Is there a process for them? And, yeah. I, and I don't know. I wish I knew. I think all of that should happen. I yeah. agree. If it was my decision, I'd say, you bet we're going to talk to those people. But I'm not there. So I don't know. Do you know anything about that? In in the CHRT compensation, we actually identified a lot of these people who have got very different circumstances and they require different types of supports. So that was identified as a to-do for the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal compensation, the order that they made, because they made an order, not only the amounts, but how the money should flow. Under the class action, I know that's on their radar. I don't know any specifics about how they're going to do it. And one of the things I should probably clarify, because it comes up a lot, Pam, is people will say, my child was taken into care by the province. Are they eligible for this compensation? And the answer to that is no, because this is, it's about on reserve because of the federal funding and for Jordan's principal. But there are class actions that are moving along for First Nations, Métis, and Inuit children off reserve who are in the child welfare system. So oh, that was underway, yeah. And I'm just trying to think about what the case title is. But there's, a, yeah, there's a class action. Maybe I can send you the link later. Yeah. If folks are off reserve, you know that there's a process out there for you. Oh, thank goodness. Because when they did the settlement for Indian residential schools, my first thought was, but what about the day schools? Yeah. What about the day schools? There were similar harms there. And you had to have a separate class action for that. And I'm just thinking, okay, in this case, you've got the federal, then there'll be all the provincial circumstances. I just hope people don't get, don't fall through the cracks in all of this. 
it just reminds me of Bill C-92, the First Nation Child Welfare Act, this distinctions-based approach and how many urban kids or rural or remote kids could actually fall through the cracks because they don't, their local community is not there. And so I, I just hope none of that happens. These are all phenomenal questions. They're great and questions. I think always better to ask questions than rely on someone's just casual, oh, I heard a rumor or here I think what's happening. Now I'm going to, if you have a couple of minutes, I'd like to go through some of the questions from that are on YouTube as well. Oh yeah, let's do it. (laughs) Thank you listeners and viewers for taking the time to listen and learn more about the complex legal rulings and what it means for First Nations kids and families harmed by the foster care system. Please share this podcast and the extended YouTube video far and wide to help other people be able to sort out the fact from the fiction and the rumors going around about this decision. I'll also post a link to the First Nations Child and Family Caring Society where you can read all of the documents that were submitted by all of the parties and get other excellent resources on how to support First Nation kids. And don't forget to support Indigenous content creators through Patreon, Buy Me a Coffee, subscriptions, or all the free ways I talked about in the beginning of this podcast. Keep living a warrior life. Walaliog.